This is the Registry Podcast. Welcome to the Real Perspectives Podcast, where we dive into the minds of commercial real estate leaders, uncovering their unique stories and insights. I'm your host, Vladimir Posanets, co-founder and publisher of the Registry. In today's episode, we're exploring the innovative world of alternative financing in real estate. Joining us is a very special guest, Dan Miller, the founder of Steward, a groundbreaking platform that's reshaping how we think about funding in the real estate sector. With a passion for supporting sustainable agriculture and local communities, Dan's journey is not just about finance, but about fostering a deeper connection between investors, land, and the people who cultivate it. We'll delve into how Steward is creating new opportunities for investors and land stewards alike, and what this means for the future of commercial real estate. So stay tuned as we uncover the story behind Steward and the vision that drives Dan Miller. Dan, uh, good morning or good afternoon in your case. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Yeah, happy to have you, of course. Um, would love to, uh, as we kick off our conversation, Dan, get a little bit of a you know background from you kind of like you know what you what you do how you got to the to the role that that you are today and sort of a bit of an introduction if if you don't mind yeah let's start started there so i'm my name is dan miller i'm the founder and ceo of steward which is an online fundraising platform that provides financing to regenerative farms and food systems infrastructure um, it's it's a, a long path that got me to that point of working in alternative agriculture um, so I'll start from the beginning a bit. I've got one side of the family that is in agriculture. That's my mother's side of the family from the Eastern Shore of Maryland, and they've been farming since the late 1800s. So I have kind of have those family ties and those family links, but she left the farm, and I grew up in Washington, D.C. in a commercial real estate family. So that's what I mainly grew up around, commercial real estate, commercial real estate development in Washington, D.C., and really always saw what could be created with creative financing and, and a vision and if capital could be unlocked, really what could be built. And so it was always from that perspective of the right project can be created with the right financing. And so when I started uh, after college, the first business I started was a real estate development company with my brother in Washington, D.C., doing urban infill development projects. And in those efforts to do smaller scale neighborhood driven you know, community retail, we had been very frustrated by traditional capital that uh, did not fit well with the types of projects we were developing. And so that was the genesis of the business Fundrise, uh, which I co-founded and was president of, which was the first real estate crowdfunding platform, but really a way yeah. to raise alternative capital from values-aligned investors for the real estate projects we were developing. So that was always the kind of core element of how do we open up who can invest and provide them new opportunities. And so from you know $300,000 raised the first year, Fundrise has grown immensely and really where I learned how to build these types of online platforms, how to raise capital through narrative storytelling, what type of regulatory credit models uh, exist. And so through the, the growth of Fundrise, I learned about alternative finance. And in actually those early days of Fundrise, when we were still mainly a real estate company, um, the, some of the projects that we were leasing to, that we were leasing tenants, were uh, food-driven, restaurant-driven. And so okay. through that, I started yeah. to meet chefs who were buying from regional farms, the farm-to-table movement, and in particular, one chef named Spike Jurdy uh, from Woodbury Kitchen. It's a James Beard Award-winning restaurant in Baltimore. 
through him, I, I really learned about regional supply chains and the power of purchasing from these types of sustainable farms. And so in my mind, I had the, the idea of Fundrise of, okay, we're, we're raising capital online for real estate. How could this be applied in agriculture? How could it be applied to connect the kind of consumer demand around farming table with, with the need of capital of those producers? But that was like 2011, 2012, didn't have time to pursue it. And so that idea right. was really latent and sat with me, you know, through the growth of Fundrise and, and through the development of that business. And it was in 2015 that I read The Unsettling of America by Wendell Berry. He's uh, one of the great agrarian writers in America. I would suggest anybody who's interested in learning more about uh, sustainable agriculture, land use, kind of government policy and its impact on agriculture. Uh, he's an incredible writer. And, and that book really gave me the like philosophical underpinning to understand the issues that existed in conventional agriculture, the, the policy designs that forced most farmers and producers towards large-scale commodity production of crops that had been devastating regions ecologically and not really delivering value to producers. And so through my engagement with that book, I, I really felt like, okay, this is something that I need to put my effort toward. I have the family history in agriculture. I have the knowledge around alternative finance. Yeah, I yeah. have a unique position to try to bring a new type of capital to this market of these these agricultural producers who are focused on soil health first and focused on sustainable ag. And that led to the creation of Steward Today. So I started working on it in 2016. Now it's 2023. We've funded over 90 projects in the past three years, over $30 million of capital. Uh, we lend to uh, agricultural producers to buy land, equipment, infrastructure. Uh, we're also lending on value-added processing infrastructure, anything about regional food systems. And what's unique about our model is we're providing private credit. We're lending money to these producers. And then we sell loan participations through our platform. So enabling individuals for as little as $100, they can participate in the financing, receive the interest in principle as it's repaid, and really develop a new model for creating small business credit and aggregating capital for financing. And so it goes back to you know my original motivation always for the projects I did as a developer and the, the financial platforms I've built is – how do you find a audience that's values aligned, who is investing for economic return, but also investing because they want to see the right type of project and yeah. they have values alignment? And I've, I've found in regenerative agriculture, there's a huge audience of people who are very passionate about it and really hoping to put their money to work. And in many ways, the real estate market, I think, is going through a similar shift where people are trying to figure out uh, you know, traceability, sustainability, and really how to deliver a net, net beneficial product. And so that's kind of part of that broader theme of if you change who the capital is, you can change the outcome and what the actual project is. That's that's really amazing. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, how you've incorporated essentially your you know personal history and the family history into into a business. Um, I don't think you intended that, but it's but it's obvious that it you know drew you back. Right. In terms of kind of uh, where where your interest is. Um, where have these projects been? Um, um, what's you know sort of interesting to me also is that you and I are, you know, now speaking across the globe. I'm on the West Coast. You're in the UK, right? But tell me about some of the projects that you guys have invested in because I think that's an interesting aspect of this uh, story too. And, and that's what I find most powerful with this is you know for agriculture, conventional ag is the dominant form of the market. Large scale commodity production export-oriented, sold to the big multinationals. 
And so there's a lot of subsidy support, you know, insurance, there's a lot of variables uh, to protect that system. The second you're an alternative producer, regional supply chains, direct sales, you're really on your own and you really don't have capital options. They don't exist. And so we support all types of producers. We started funding. The first loan we made in 2017 was to an urban farm in Detroit that was going from a tenth of an acre of land to two acres of land. In yeah. three years, they went from 10,000 revenue to 150,000, really proving that you can restore urban land while growing uh, food with of nutrient quality in areas that traditionally don't have access. Um, and similarly, right now, we just closed a loan uh, last week, a $6.6 million loan, so much bigger scale, to a uh, livestock processing business and direct-to-consumer brand that was created by three fifth-generation Montana ranching families who, uh, instead of selling their product at auction and just getting wholesale prices, are going to rebuild full control of the system from slaughter to value-added processing to a restaurant in downtown Helena. So it's really about values-driven producers um, where we're providing financing generally for land, equipment, infrastructure. We're guiding these projects through kind of growth and necessary support services um, and loans as small as fifty to 100000 and now as large as millions of dollars. But the, the demand has really grown in the, in the past few years, I would say. I think the kind of consumer demand, particularly post-COVID, is, is enormous for these types of products. The yeah. awareness is there. The policy support's there. There's a lot of USDA grant money coming down. Um, so at the end of the day, you have a situation where consumer demand is pulling, is is, is driving the market, but the financing options are, are relatively unchanged. And so we, we initially, I would say I started steward thinking it may be more niche. You know, the first farm was to a urban farm in Detroit, and we funded an Amish farmer in Pennsylvania who was doing dairy and grain, uh, and then a hemp, and, hemp farm in southern Oregon. So obviously non-traditional uses, but now we're working with farms that have uh, – 10 plus million dollars of revenue that are established enterprises and they're still cut out of the market so that the need is greater than I realized, which is any sort of agricultural business that is not practicing conventional commodity ag in the traditional system is cut out and the resources aren't sure. there for them. Sure, sure. And has your focus been primarily then on North America or or have you been able to expand into other parts of the world as well with uh, with with some of this, or maybe that's the plan in the in the in the near future. Right now, we're U.S. focused. Um, our team's remote, so I actually live in in London in the U.K. And I, I started this just as I moved abroad. So from the beginning, we've been remote. Uh, but ten other staff spread across the U.S. P- part of that is that we wanted to be in broader communities. I think a lot of times, maybe ag startups are in urban areas where they're not as connected to the customer. And so the goal here was distributed team that's within these communities that has deeper ties to these types of networks. Um, I have a, definitely an interest in working abroad. I just spoke with someone in Tasmania this morning, actually. And so, you know, I'm, I'm always having those conversations around how would we support a global demand? But in yeah. reality, the U.S. market is, is such a need. Um, and, and it's really leading the world in what are these new models? What are these regional models of integrated producers, processing and markets how do we get that to viability and how do we how do we grow it? So I'm you know, we've got tons of time to grow and we'll find other markets. But for today, the Pacific Northwest in particular uh, has really been our focus. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, interesting. So uh, how do the farmers find you? Uh, what's what's sort of a typical kind of way that, you know, they get to you and then how do they engage with you? And then on the sort of money supply side, 
you know, how how do you find folks that are interested in doing these investments? It's really a referral word of mouth driven network. And so on, on the farmer side and the capital side, I mean, there are a lot of these types of producers out there already. The market's growing, but there's a lot of these, you know, regional producers, maybe starting a farmer's market, starting with these types of supply chains. And so once we build credibility in that audience that we can provide capital on fair terms, that we're reliable, there's a really strong network effect that builds. And so we tend to work within those existing projects and, and spread out outward from there. Um, we also work with technical assistance providers who maybe support farmers, so other service businesses that have have these types of farmers as clients and the lack of financing ends up being a challenge for everybody. So there's there's really a known group of producers who need capital to run their business, and that's who we serve. The other side of the market, who's funding the projects, that's a more novel component. I mean, other than steward, most people have no money in agriculture, and certainly of even money in agriculture, be even smaller amount that's actually in sustainable and regenerative farms. So you're dealing with a, a general population audience who has no exposure, no familiarity, and you're trying to introduce them. The benefit of this product is it's connected to everybody in terms of food and landscape and ecology. And so the, once you get people to understand that this is really commercial real estate lending, we're lending right. to an agricultural producer, we're securing against land improvements, equipment. So it's really an owner-operator commercial real estate financing. Once you realize that that it fits that mold, then people uh, feel more comfortable and understand, okay, I'm, I'm lending to businesses with secured loans, but I'm also able to have a positive impact. You know, the, the net product of these businesses is something that has external benefits. Part of the business from the beginning with Steward was how do we create a true capital market for regenerative agriculture at fair prices that you know, isn't the really subsidized money coming through the government that distorts the market, but also isn't the really expensive capital, you know, of private equity firms and hedge funds, which makes it hard to sustain an enterprise. And so most of our lending is done around prime, prime's eight and a half now. So, you know, loans between eight to nine and a half recently. And then okay. lenders on our platform, they earn the yield of a loan minus 50 basis point servicing spread. So, you know, we just sold a loan that was at 9%, 8.5% net, uh, received back to producers. That was a one-year loan, so it paid e evenly amortizing over a single year. It was actually for grain purchases that were being sold by a flour mill throughout the year. Uh, and that's just an example of, you know, if people can earn reasonable yields, mid to high single digits, and have that direct link to the enterprise and see the benefit of that work, there's a lot of demand for that, and, and that's the market we're trying to build. What's that kind of direct discretionary audience, whether it's family offices, individuals, retail? You know, How can we build that human connection with people to start to move money out of traditional places into these alternatives? Right. Uh, the investors with uh, your company, do they come from across the globe? You probably have a good sort of perspective on kind of where, where they are located geographically. Right now, it's a U.S. audience for our platform, for the loans on our platform. So we have uh, direct project loans and then a pooled loan vehicle. That's all U.S. capital. You know, our mo regulatory models built for the U.S. are KYC, AML, payment processing. And so the reality of these types of direct digital platforms is you need a seamless uh, system. And so, yep. you know, those types of cross-border systems are, don't exist. For the actual holding company itself, Steward Holdings, that owns the technology and manages the platform, 
controls the lending entity, et cetera. Um, I'm the anchor investor and self-funded that for the first five years. But since then, we've raised money from over 100 investors from you know family offices okay. down to yeah. users of our platform. And that's an international audience, you know, Australia, Switzerland, um, Canada. And, and that shows to me like there, there's, there's a lot of interest globally in this work. Most of those investors are hoping that Steward can also work in their own domestic market. And so that, that's how I view our business. We're really a network. The, the strength of our capital base and the strength of our base of borrowers is the strength of our business. And the broader our ownership and the more aligned the capital is, you know, the more that the, the upside is shared and the more resources are available to the next group on the platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Dan, I'm curious, you mentioned that um, a lot of these, uh, you know, borrowers have a difficult time, you know, finding funds, right? And so one of the reasons that you have been successful is that you've been able to kind of come in and, you know, provide sort of these non-traditional forms of, you know, money to to them. Then who would you say uh, competes with you? You know, is it a regular bank? Is it like a local regional bank that sort of typically does agricultural lending? Um, you know, how, how do you see the landscape for you? It's an interesting question because, you know, I, I came from the commercial real estate side. In commercial real estate, there's so many forms of capital. You have so much choice. People may complain about terms and structure, but many variety and forms of capital with different trade-offs. In this type of agriculture, so, you know, regenerative ag focused on, you know, regional uh, soil-focused, nutrition-focused agriculture, there there really isn't a source of capital available. The main source of lending for ag through these kind of commodity and government-backed schemes, you know, they don't qualify for those types of programs. That that regional bank, that local bank that maybe was the handshake deal, you know, you see in the movies, those are gone and those banks have been consolidated. And so you basically have a market where other than our financing, they, they don't get financing. And so you have these incredibly undercapitalized businesses that need asset financing to run their business but can't get it. They have demand for their products, but that cash flow can't finance all the improvements directly themselves. So they're, they're stuck in a situation where they, they can't meet known consumer demand because of the lack of capital, and they just struggle through it. And, you know, it's almost like they, they, they know what they could do, but the resources aren't there for them. So our work generally is like getting the business organized, helping them work through projections pro forma, like what, what could growth look like if they had access to the right amount of capital? What would their margins and economics be? What should we start with first? What should we do later? So it's really building yep. that financing plan and then executing that with that with them in a series of financing we are complementary to other forms of capital. We've uh, done two deals where the USDA was a senior loan and we came in subordinate. So if they, if somebody can access low-cost capital from some resource, we're not against it. We'll work with it. It just normally doesn't work. And then we also have a USDA grant writer we work with who writes grants on behalf of these projects. And so that's our view is let's bring whatever capital can come to the table um, even if it's not all ours directly, but primarily, like we're we're a very unique capital provider. We have a we have a distinct audience of now over thirty five hundred funders who are on our platform providing financing direct to the projects through us. So it's not your classic kind of institutional or fund who has a lot of restrictions yeah. and can't necessarily do things. So I, I find in this work in regenerative agriculture, it's been 
undercapitalized for so long and understaffed that you have to help these businesses grow. You can't just look at them and say yes or no. You really have to put the time in to understand them. But if they get on the right path, I mean, that project I mentioned, those livestock producers building vertically integrated processing and direct-to-consumer sales, it's called Old Salt in Montana. We first met them two years ago. They just opened a burger joint for 20000 bucks to just prove the demand for you know, Montana meat sold as burgers. We helped them raise 350000 of money from their friends and family. We then provided a bridge loan to buy a existing processing facility and helped with a grant for that facility. Also provided a bridge loan to buy a building downtown. And then last week closed on the financing for slaughter facility upgrades to the processing and construction for that facility. So now that's a deal that's had $10 million of total capital through debt, equity, and grants from $20,000 initial investment three two yeah. years ago. But we're coaching them through. We're figuring out the capital stack. We're multiplying it. And so you, you have these huge enterprises. Like These will be the companies of the next you know, few decades that prove out how do we do regional food systems with a good end product and the net benefit to the producers. So I, that's why like, we put in the time now knowing that this is a new sector that's being created and these relationships will pay off in the future even if you know, they're technically small deals or deals that take more effort sure. than normal today. Sure. What's a typical time to, you know, originate a loan for you guys? The typical time, I would say, is 60, 90 days, just in like a normal diligence cycle. We've turned around loans in as fast as two weeks. So it's it's as fast as we can get diligence done. In terms of distribution, I mean, we just launched an offering last week, raised a million dollars in an hour. So the, the speed of fundraising has really yeah. gone up. I mean, two years ago, it took us three months to raise 100000 So, like, really rapid velocity growth. So most of the time is actually on the commercial lending side of the business. You know, the loan application, financial diligence, ag diligence. Like, that, the, the time it takes to actually vet a deal is really the length of time. The distribution and sale of it is the quick part. Yeah, interesting. Do the investors um, or or the you know people who are funding the enterprise do they get a chance to pick where they where their funds can can go or or do you sort of select that? Yeah, so they're lenders basically. They're they're participating in our own so that the document they're executing the loan participation agreement. Um, we have we have two products. So we have a direct loan product where you're making a loan, you're part of a loan to a specific producer secured against but the assets for that producer, you know, economic performance directly tied to one business. So that's really narrative driven. That's where you've got, you know, your regional connection, that human connection. And that yeah. that's really our, our retail product. And then we've also created a diversified pooled vehicle for people who don't want to select a farm. You know, they, they don't either want to do that diligence or they want they want to diversify from more sector perspective. And so we've created a short term loan vehicle where people lend money on a nine-month basis, almost like commercial paper. We then lend that as a series of bridge loans to various of these projects, mainly for land acquisition and other uses. And so we have a short-term capital pool diversified across a basket of loans or a fixed-duration you know, individual loan product. And, and that's what's unique about our model. We've, you know, these are fifth and sixth iteration of, of various products since 2000, you know, 19 when we launched our first product publicly we've gone through multiple versions you're just trying to align supply demand you know you've got your 
market of people who need capital. You got the market of people who want to provide it. And every year we learn a bit more about complementary products or adjustments to existing products. And that's where that velocity and speed starts to come in, which is you yeah. really hone in on, on what both sides of the market want. And luckily with regenerative agriculture, there is a big meeting point on cost of capital. Like there, there, there is demand at rates roughly around prime on both sides of the market. And that was the thesis initially that, that was never certain of can these businesses sustain commercial financing? You know, what return are people going to need to do these types of deals? And if anything, it's been very positive that like at, at a fair cost of capital, these deals can get done and certainly a lower cost of capital than a comparable traditional real estate would get. Yeah, I would be remiss not to ask you kind of what impact on your business kind of the you know global interest rate environment has. Um, tell me how that impacts what you guys do. And, you know, you, you mentioned, obviously, you're somewhere around prime effectively, but um you know are are you concerned at all sort of where that's heading um and what's your what's your read on the kind of the some of the macroeconomic drivers that might impact your business as well that there was definitely a big um you know we've been building this distributed credit model you know for years and the question is how does it work in the stressed environment and so you know in march things went haywire we actually had two of our fastest campaigns ever in March in the later half of, of the, of, you know, this, the month after SVB went down. And so what we've seen over the past six months is the excess capitals out of the market, cost of capitals way higher, traditional capitals taking far less risk and wanting a lot more return for that. So the, the type of customer we were supporting was never well supported by the system. Yeah. But the ones that were more established that maybe had a little bit of access to a regional bank and a little bit of money here and there, they're now cut out. And so we've seen like this summer, we had a group called White Oak Pastures, one of the leading regenerative farms in the country run by uh, a gentleman named Will Harris, who's fifth generation. Um, and so they have had over $20 million of sales for the past five years. I mean, a huge operation. And they couldn't get financing over the summer to get through working capital needs. So we stepped in, provided $1.2 million loan in three weeks and really, you know, helped stabilize that enterprise. So that type of customer maybe already had other choices. Now they don't. So from, from our perspective, our cost of capital has not gone up that much. You know, we were always lending on more of an absolute basis of like six to 8%. So now maybe we're lending, you know, seven and a half to nine and a half, yeah. but most banks were lending at four. Now they're lending at 12. So we're, we're somehow a low-cost provider and more values-aligned and more dynamic. So our value proposition is actually much stronger in this market. And I think a lot of that's due to the values-driven element that if people are going to put money somewhere in this market, at least our projects mean something to them versus you know a generic investment or generic allocation to something that uh, doesn't mean anything to them. So it, it's the resilience has existed. And last week, we had our fastest fundraise to date, a million dollars in an hour. And that was an loan right. that paid out eight and a half percent. So, you know, good, but not not aggressive. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm going to uh, take kind of a, you know, bit of a uh, shift in our conversation. I am curious, um, you know, you guys have obviously... Uh, done, you know, crowdfunding in your previous venture. You're now doing this with uh, Stuart as well. Um, 
where from your perspective is the crowdfunding market like as kind of a concept right obviously we've gone um through some initial phases of sort of innovation and what 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 it does but i'm curious from you know an insider like you kind of like how you see the industry overall and um uh i think it's beyond sort of the point of you know being tested it actually works right but I would like to see kind of what you think about that and sort of where, where you think this industry is going in general. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, in, in general, I, f- I would say I feel fairly disappointed about the state of, of the broader crowdfunding market. And you know, crowdfunding means different things to different people. For me, it's more about the direct online distribution of capital. And under that framework, you know, the reality is they, they loosen the regulations through the JOBS Act but it's still pretty expensive and convoluted and costly to go through uh, a process of raising from anyone other than accredited privately. And so the the ease of regulation D506B, which is the traditional method of raising private capital accredited only, that's still the dominant form. That's still where the, the norms are that hasn't been dislodged at all. And then the alternatives such as Reg CF, Reg A, have been utilized, but um, only moderately. And so I, I still see so many barriers of businesses that I think would be great fits for raising capital online that don't, or platforms like such as under the f- uh, funding portal regime where the platforms are restricted from regulatory framework to, from providing additional services to sustain the businesses. And so I think you've got a mix of regulations that are still, you know, maybe better than they were, but not conducive enough and still a bit cumbersome and just the reality of like most most small businesses and that's where i'm most interested right where can the money go that it is not getting properly it's this the small to mid-sized enterprise that creates the jobs is dynamic that needs the capital but they need the capital so they don't have the time and money to go through complicated and expensive ways to raise it and and they tend to not do it and so i i all of my work is around trying to uh, expand access and broaden uh, not only who can fund projects, but but who can get access to that type of capital. And that's always what's motivated me. I think crowdfunding is often pitched as like a, um, you know, cut out middlemen, save fees. And, you know, sure, kind of, but um, there's still a lot of effort related to doing it. And so there, there is the fee adjustment. But the main thing that I see that's different of raising capital direct from people is you have that human connection. You have a link between the capital and the business that can go deeper than just economic return. And it's really when you tap upon those relationships that you see capital formation in unique circumstances and ways that are really positive to that enterprise. And so it's it's really about how can you create a different model where the norms are alternative capital, where people assume they have the chance to put money into things that matter to them and that impact them. And we're nowhere near there. But if you look in the broader course of history, I mean, the 1933, 34 Securities and Exchange Acts, those created the model that we've been living in, in terms of regulatory framework. Regulation A, which is what Fundrise pioneered, and and that was, you know, never used. It was used one time the year before we used it. Now billions of dollars a year go through it. So you are seeing new avenues open up, but um, we're still early in that in that work. And I still, I speak with uh, projects around the world, you know, us is ahead and they're even more frustrated. Uh, So I I, I would like to see more done, 
but I understand how challenging it is to raise money and how hard yeah. it is to understand these alternatives and, and how hard it is to operate as a platform in these environments. So I, I do know how challenging it is. But I would say most of the applications of crowdfunding, I would say, have been um, underwhelming in, in just like so much of it, real estate crowdfunding. Just It's just tends to be more generic stuff when I, I think it's the localized stuff, the relationship-driven stuff, the uh, the true alternatives where the need and, and demand are aligned. And and that's what we've shown now with Steward that, like, yes, it's a niche. It's it's regenerative agriculture that most people are just learning about. But you have an audience who really cares about it and is sure. really interested in moving money towards it. And so if you had a lot of these smaller networks of capital, they could really sync up. But the amount of time and money and costs it takes to develop these types of platforms, I mean, I've done it twice now. It it wasn't quicker or less expensive the second time. That 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 surprised even me. So you have real barriers to entry on on both sides as the uh, fundraiser and as the platform. So I, I understand why um, why the uptake is it where I would think a lot of industry participants would have hoped. Yeah, interesting. Well, I think also what you guys are doing is the hard stuff, right? And the, and the hard stuff is hard to do, and so. Um, you know, people who are tending to kind of um, create these businesses might be focused on sort of how to, you know, streamline things and make it easier and faster and maybe quicker, but don't necessarily spend the time like you do on focusing on a specific segment, right? Um, to really sort of help that group uh, evolve and grow, right? Yeah. That might be one of the one of the biggest challenges. Um, as you, you know, work through kind of the, um, you know, farming community and you've seen all kinds of different things. I mean, when we initially spoke, you talked about all kinds of different ex- uh, examples of, you know, companies that, that, that you've uh, lent funds to. Um, I'm curious, you know, how do you see, you know, the farming industry evolve? You know, are you excited about some innovations there in terms of uh, just, you know, entrepreneurs doing new things, you know, whether it's kelp farming, whether it's, you know, all kinds of different things that could be done. Um, what What's your sense of the landscape? I, I have, a, I'd say, differing perspectives on it. You know, people feel bleak generally, I think, about climate change and land use and agriculture. So, like, more from a broad perspective, I think at the USDA stat is less than 1% of food is grown, processed, and sold within a region, which is 250 miles. So basically nothing. So you have a system that has the wrong outputs and is doing it at great volume with huge ecological devastation. But you also have an amazing cultural shift that's happened around consumers who are demanding something different, around producers, many of whom from non-farm backgrounds who are getting into this work because of the the motivation beyond just the economic and then you've now got some of the intermediate supply chain stuff starting to move around you know value-added processing so i'm really optimistic about the new models that are being built to prove regenerative agriculture at a regional scale you know that's really what needs to be proven how can you show that you can produce food and take care of the land at the volumes needed to feed people and until that can be done the traditional conventional system is just going to subsist and and stay as it is and it has enormous political and corporate power behind it so it tends to be but in the next five or ten years it's going to be proven that you not only have a better end product but you have better income for producers and better ecological outcomes through this type of agriculture so i view it as you know a bit like maybe the e-commerce in early 90s like it's a small portion of the market today 
but it's where all the dynamism is. It's where all the growth is. It's where new entrants are. It's, it's where consumers want to be. It's where policy is moving. And so you're, you're in a sector that's going to be growing for generations. I mean, you had the current ag model that, you know, national global export driven model was really a post World War II creation. You know, that the, the consolidation of farms and the average increase in farm size was, is about a hundred years old. So it's, it's not, it's not that old, but that's a few generations. So the idea that that's going to be unwound in a few years is, is just unrealistic. So there's sure. certainly an imperative that it has to happen. But if you take a different perspective and say, where, where are the trends and culture moving? What are things going to look like in 10 or 20 years? I do think we have the chance of building a truly alternative model. And that's where the farmers can earn enough to sustain their livelihood. They can take care of the land and the communities. They can grow nutrient tests dense food that is actually healthy to people and it can be part of a transparent supply chain to the end consumer. So I'm I'm seeing these models be built in places at a regional level. And then the question is, can this be done at a national and global level? But, but the entrepreneurs that I'm working with, the people that are in this sector, incredibly motivated, incredibly passionate. And I think, I think, uh, I think momentum's behind them. Yeah. And you've obviously introduced technology into this space. Uh, you know, the reason you and I are speaking is because of technology and are able to kind of, you know, have this interview done across the globe. I am curious, you know, um, you know, as AI, I know that's sort of a you know hot topic for everybody, but I do think it's a it's a real thing. I am curious how you see that part, uh, you know, growing within the business that, that you're in as well. Yeah, that I I I, I apply technology, but I'm also a traditionalist in like the the need of technology. And so most most technology in agriculture focuses on you know the large commodity production and just slight adjustments to it, efficiencies, you know, aerial imaging, modeling, spraying, etc. Um, but the real need is on the like on the grassroots, really producer level, and so. The, the needs of these enterprises is just small amounts of capital and basic business services. Like that's really the need that the technology kind of automated solution has been promised for years in agriculture. And like, it's just not even, it's just like philosophically something that I think um, the alternative needs to be supported. So I think of our method as like, we're using technology to aggregate networks and make connections and build an efficiency around the raising of the capital and the storytelling but the money's going to people who are grounded in the land and using practices that trace back thousands of years and really trying to mimic nature in the natural systems and biology. And so the, the world of agriculture is very much split in that, like, let's automate everything, use power, you know, internal growing systems versus, like, let's use the sun and the soil and people and, like, cherish and respect the work and the culture and the history and I'm, I, I fight very much for that second side. It's not that the technology is not needed or useful. It's that the, the biggest change will happen via just getting resources, yeah. capital, and business services in the hands of these producers more than anything versus the other side, which is the kind of like high-scale automation AI. Um, and that, that part of the market has funding. It's got VC money. It's got corporate money. It, it, it is capitalized where I'm always fighting for the scrappy upstart. Yeah. 
Um, Dan, as we close our conversation here, I'd love to hear from you some, you know, words of wisdom, you know, lessons learned, and maybe even advice to you, uh, you know, a, a younger Dan, if you if you will, um, you know, as you've gone through this process. Well, I hinted at this earlier that the second go around with Stuart of you know a novel online fundraising platform and model. I assumed I would have learned a lot from Fundrise and I'd be able to do it faster and I could use that learning and apply it. But in reality, it was a whole new set of learning, navigating a new regulatory model around credit and lending versus equity and securities, finding a different customer profile around these types of regenerative farmers and what do they need and what type of capital. And so that like that early gestation period of, of understanding the customer building the technology, putting the regulatory framework together. It just takes time. And and as much as you assume it's something you can speed up and learn how to speed up, there's also just a natural discovery phase in it. So it would definitely be on any future endeavors always to realize that it's likely to take longer. And uh, it, if you're going to do the work to create something new that you have to just enjoy and love that process. And I do. So for me, like the, the ability to use novel regulatory and financial frameworks to bring high impact money to places that don't otherwise get it. I'll do whatever it takes to make that happen. Yeah. Those are, those are some wise words. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, best of luck in your endeavors. Would love to hear where you are in a few years and sort of uh, would look uh, forward to doing this interview again and hopefully with a, with a much sort of, you know, bigger um, enterprise around the world, because I think what you guys are doing is really remarkable and, the farms that you're funding are uh, truly, truly something special as well. I appreciate it, and I hope so. Thanks, Vlad. That was another episode of the Real Perspectives podcast, and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers. Cheers.